702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Live, online. The 702 app, DSTV Channel 856, 92.7 and 106 FM. On the show today, government begins the process of procuring 2,500 megawatts of nuclear energy. An update on the water situation in Joburg. Plans to deal with crime in Dipstuart. The Constitutional Court hands down a judgment on a challenge to the Refugee Act. And the nation mourns the soulful songstress Zahara. All of that over the next hour. 7.02. Let's walk the talk. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Mandy Wiener. Good to be with you today. A busy, busy news day today, but really it feels like the nation is mourning that news about Zahara breaking last night and just so so incredibly sad. Uh, her music, her lyrics spoke to the soul so beautifully South African. Uh, a real tragic turn, a tremendous loss, and so many people have been sharing memories about uh, Zahara, and I'd love to hear from you what your memories are. Uh, Palesa, the technical producer on the show was just telling me before we came on air about that December in 2011 when Loliwe dropped and you were telling me about what it felt like at that at that time and I thought it was such a poignant memory. So in 2011 right I'm from the East End I'm from Davidson so it's the hood hood that December was the best December Hmm. we've had in this in so long because every corner played Zahara Loliwe and the thing with that album and the introduction of Zahara is that it was a magical album. Like you couldn't skip any song on that album. So it was perfect. And yeah. And the music was beautiful. It was. It was. It was everything about her, her singing, her guitar. Everything was just amazing. I remember I had the CD. I actually, I, I bought the CD of, of Loli when I was listening to it over and over again. The time when we still had CDs. It was only 12 years ago. Um, so I'd love to hear your memories about uh, Zahara. We'll speak about her a bit later on in the show. So many uh, memories coming in. So many accolades. Uh, people just applauding her. So send us a WhatsApp voice note. 072 I'd love to, to hear from you on that that today. Uh, Other big breaking news this morning is uh, a briefing by the Electricity Minister, Dr. Josienzo Ramachopa, giving the country an update on this 2,500 megawatts of new generation capacity from nuclear. So government wanting to build new nuclear energy projects uh, to ensure energy security. No deal has been made just yet with a a vendor or a foreign government, but that process is now starting. And of course, the only nuclear power station we have at the moment is Kuburg, which has a capacity of about 1,840 megawatts. So that gives you an indication of uh, the scale of what we are looking at here. So let's try and understand this a bit more with Chris Yelland, Energy Analyst, MD of EE Business. Chris, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. So Ramachopa has said that there's a strong case, a compelling case for nuclear, uh, telling us, of course, that it is the cleanest, it's the cheapest energy. Um, what, what are your, what's your interpretation of the step that we've seen here? Well, obviously it's an important step uh, and it will be uh, a very highly contested step. I mean, statements that it is the cleanest electricity um, are highly contested because it has a high-level nuclear waste stream which cannot be attended to at present. Uh, so the question is, is it really the cleanest? Uh, it is highly contested. Secondly, 
Uh, is it the cheapest? Uh, that is extremely highly contested. The figures presented today at the media briefing are simply wrong. Firstly, when it comes to what is known as the overnight capital cost, usually expressed in U.S. dollars per kilowatt of installed capacity, the figures that were mentioned starting at 2000 U.S. dollars per kilowatt are completely, completely wrong. If you look at international benchmark studies by people like Lazard, who published this for various countries of the world, but not only nuclear, but other technologies, it is completely wrong and out of line. The figures that were mentioned for the levelized cost of electricity from new nuclear power, figures of 60 cents a kilowatt hour, goodness knows where that figure comes from. It is completely wrong. Uh, by a, you know, the, the actual levelized cost of electricity for new nuclear, as indicated in Lazard, you know, there's a range indicated, but it's in the range of two rand a kilowatt hour, not 60 cents a kilowatt hour. Where those figures come from? Goodness knows, it is not the most, uh, not the cheapest source of electricity, not by a long shot. Uh, and, and so, all I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, to suggest to suggest <laughs> that it's the cheapest uh, uh, and the cleanest uh, uniform of new uh, power is com completely wrong, and it's certainly not the shortest. It's going to take at least 10 years to deliver nuclear, and okay. that is in uh, under highly optimistic conditions. Uh, in practice, uh, you, you know, nuclear power has taken uh, many years longer than that with massive cost and time overruns. So I, I think uh, uh, the suggestions that this is a, a no-brainer and a no-regret option, no, I think it's a highly a high regret option and a high cost option. So we know that during um, Jacob Zuma's administration, there were all of these suggestions around nuclear and Russia and that, de that deal with Tina Jumat-Peterson. Uh, it was all mired in controversy. So now we're back here again and we are triggering a procurement process. The government's going to go out to see if they can get that 2,500 megawatts of, of nuclear capacity. What do we need to look out for? Well, firstly, to say that the fact that one's going out for a procurement process does not necessarily mean it's a done deal. In 2008, they went out to a nuclear procurement process. Two preferred bidders were announced, Westinghouse and Arriva, which is now from a time and part of Electricity de France, and then the whole program was cancelled. Uh, and therefore, um, uh, because it was found to be unaffordable. There was another procurement process that was started by Eskom, uh, Mr. Dave Nichols, who was chief nuclear officer at the time. I think it was in about 2016 or 17. Uh, they started the nuclear procurement process. It was challenged in court in the Cape Town, uh, Cape, uh, Town High Court. Uh, it was declared to be unconstitutional and illegal, and the process that had been followed uh, to be to be wrong and uh, non-compliant, and, and the whole thing was set aside. So the fact that they've announced a new procurement process now does not necessarily mean it's even going to start. And even if it starts and uh, preferred bidders are announced, doesn't mean to say it's going to go forward. And I've given you two examples uh, indicating the precedents for that. The precedents. So. Uh, it, it, there's a long road ahead, um, and, uh, and and I think we've just got to uh, take this step by step. Uh, government is certainly determined, uh, put it this way, parts of government are determined to proceed. Other parts of government, including the President's uh, climate have expressed severe reservations for new nuclear. It's highly contested. There may be legal challenges, 
the road is long and difficult ahead and we should not jump the gun. Chris, thank you very much for that. Chris Yelland, Energy Analyst, MD of EE Business, uh, responding there to this press conference from the Minister of Electricity, Hotsiento Rabachopa, saying we're going ahead with nuclear. It's the cleanest, cheapest energy source. Government is schizophrenic when it comes to the supply of power. On the one hand, you've got the just transition and the funding from Western powers and commitment to IPPs. On the other hand, you've got this commitment to coal and to nuclear. And now we're seeing Jose Ramachopa saying we are kickstarting this process to go and find nuclear capacity. We know that there was that judgment during the Zuma administration as well. It's been consistently mired in controversy. It really is just incredibly confusing. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. In the city of Joburg, there have been big issues with water over the past few days. So a briefing today giving an update on what the situation is with water supply in Joburg. We'll hear from our reporter on that in a minute. But firstly, have a listen to Logan Munsami, who's the Senior Manager of Operations and Maintenance of Water and Sewer Infrastructure in the city of Joburg, giving an update on the water levels. Uh, the Stanton system, uh, which, which colleagues you might be familiar with, over the last few days we've been having challenges in this particular system. The positive news is as of today, you can see the levels have improved significantly, uh, uh, with Limbro Park sitting at 58%, Marlborough Reservoir sitting at 77%, Morningside at 80 uh, Bryanston Reservoir 36%, and it's on an upward trajectory as of today because we're diverting a lot of flows into the Bryanston Reservoir system. It has gone low overnight, and we are picking that up during the day. The Lovo Reservoir system, which was quite low to empty over the last few days, has recovered significantly uh, over the last two days. You can see currently sitting at 90%, relatively full, which is good, including the tower at 40%. Some of the interventions we have used over the last few days to boost the Santon system uh, we're closing outlets uh, during the night, specifically between 8 o'clock and 4 in the morning. We are restricting inflows to certain key reservoirs to boost pressure to other reservoirs that require a bit more inflow. That in its, you know, in its own has shown very good in our system in that the levels are on an upward trajectory. The Santon system is looking very stable this morning, which is positive news. There should be isolated cases of, of, of no uh, water to poor pressures. That is predominantly because the reservoir outlets on Bryanston specifically and Elova, which was previously throttled, is now fully opened. And there's air pockets in certain parts of the reticulation, which we are going through and bleeding those lines. Uh, colleagues, we've got various other interventions on our network as a whole. These are a combination of closing inlets or restricting inlets to reservoirs, uh, closing or throttling reservoir outlets in order to build capacity for the day so that we can shift water to other needed areas which are on low levels. These are some of the, uh, this is a snapshot of some of the reservoir systems that we are manipulating, that we are manually, you know, closing inlets and outlets and bypasses in order to boost the system, specifically in the North Rankies contained Dev Bank. Um, in the uh, CBD section, going towards north is the North Cliff, Deep Cliff in the south, uh, to name a few. These are some of the initiatives that we are undertaking to make sure that our reservoirs are sitting at an acceptable level and water is shifted where much needed.
Logan Munsami, the Senior Manager of Operations and Maintenance of Water and Sewer Infrastructure in the City of Joburg, giving that update on water levels. EWN reporter Bernadette Wicks watching that briefing. Uh, Bernadette, they, they do these briefings regularly. It is quite high level, as you can hear there. But uh, essentially, what is the outlook for, for residents in Joburg? Well, at the, at the moment, Mandy, um, as you mentioned, obviously we've been faced with quite a lot of water challenges in and around Joburg in recent weeks and months. Uh, most recently, there have been problems here in Sandton and in the surrounding areas. In general, um, what he said during the update is that things are looking up. It seems that most of the reservoirs and towers around the around the city are now functioning a lot better. Um, there were a couple of sort of issues that he identified still persisted. One of those was the Eagle's Nest um, reservoir, which services the southern part of Joburg, and they are still currently sitting at a low level of 10% at the moment, which is, of course, very, very low. Aside from that, though, um, he did say that the system seems quite stable at the moment, and he did also say, as it stands, and this is ob- obviously subject to change um, before then, but going into the festive season, it does look like um, the situation is quite good at the moment. We shouldn't be too concerned about taps running dry over the festive season at the moment. Well, I'm sure everybody leaves Joburg, right? So there will be much lower demand. That is that is what I think is kind of factoring in that forecast. Um, Joburg gets very, very quiet over the festive season. Everyone heads to the coast. Um, so perhaps the high, the high demand will kind of shift to KZN and the likes. Bernadette, thank you very much. An update there on the water situation in Joburg. If you're still experiencing interruptions, we know there have been issues in Sandton specifically. Let us know how that's going and what your thoughts are on that. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Oh, oh Mandy, I had to listen to the prof um, talking about nuclear. I, I, I was not surprised. We were going to get a, call it a negative report from him. He doesn't support this thing. But here's the thing. The renewables are costing us 44 billion rands a year. Escom's money. We don't even see where they are, Mandy. The newer ones have not come in five years later mendy so nuclear has to come uh, it won't take 10 years i'm sure of that kustas hey kustas thank you uh, you always hear this thing from government right about how they need 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 mixed uh, a mixed energy approach so we need a little bit of of coal we need a little bit of renewables we need a little bit of of nuclear and that's clearly why they're going with this and don't forget of course the integrated resource plan that irp we're still sitting with an irp from 2019 it's outdated so we are expecting a new irp to come in 2023 i mean we're in december so who knows when when that's going to be published so hopefully before before the end of the year but the reality of the situation is and and people are polarized on this is that we have to go renewables if uh, we have to appreciate the just transition and what's happening in the world with climate change. But if you're a denialist, then you'll see the world a bit differently. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. The Gauteng Police Commissioner, Lieutenant General Elias Mawela, has been briefing members of the Provincial Legislature's Portfolio Committee on Community Safety on plans to address high levels of crime in the Dipsuit Policing Precinct. So we know that there were those vigilante attacks that took place last week, uh, seven people being killed um, and several people appearing in court as well. So let's understand what's happening there, Tabiso Goba, EWN reporter, listening to that briefing. Tabiso, good afternoon to you. What is the Gauteng Police Commissioner been saying? Good afternoon, Mandy. Um, um, as you said, obviously, the Gauteng Legislature uh, Portfolio Committee on Community Safety um, has sort of um, asked the police commissioner to just um, give them a, an idea of, you know, just what is happening in Deep Sleep and just what are they doing? As we know, that's on the first.
but there was a cruel discovery of seven bodies of young men that were assaulted and then torched and then piled up together. Uh, it was a very um, gruesome story. Um, but in terms of what the police commissioner Elie has been saying, it's pretty much uh, something that we've heard quite a number of times, especially in areas where there is um, a high crime, where areas there's a high crime levels. And usually with these areas, police saying that, you know, these areas, there's a very high dense population, high unemployment. Uh, when you look at an area like uh, Deep Sloot, there's about 147 taverns in just the entire, in this very small area of Deep Sloot. And they're saying that, you know, drug and alcohol abuse, there's uh, one of the major contributing factors um, to crime. And obviously, um, other socioeconomic um, issues like uh, poverty, uh, poor environmental planning. So p- the police basically saying that there's a lot of issues here that as police, we do not have any authority. We, we can't build better roads. We can't uh, build, you know, electricity. We can't build houses. We can't deport all the foreign uh, nationals. So saying that government will have to actually come in and actually assist us in, uh, in resolving this. Now, Elias Mawela also spoke about um, some of the deep issues um, that have been troubling the city or, or, or the area of Deep Sloot. You remember, Mandy, that when they protested, one of the issues they've raised was the issue of a high number of foreign nationals living with, within Deep Sloot. This is what Elias Mawela, the Southern Police Commissioner, had to say on that issue. Three of them, they paid their fines and they returned back to the community. So in a way, by taking those people through the court process, we're legitimizing their stay in the country. And during that time, majority of these undocumented persons, some of them have left Deep, deep Slot. That is why you see the crime picture of Deep Slot that financial year, it was relatively low because of they knew that once you are arrested, then there will be a problem. But when they realized that there's a loophole in the court process, so anyone they didn't mind, it's better to be arrested, go through the court process, and then you are legit in the country. So that created a problem. Uh, and it's something which requires the lawmakers to can correct. Whereas the police, we have done our part in that particular space. And to be so, what kind of reception is uh, the provincial commissioner receiving there from the provincial legislature? Well, the members of the legislature are obviously very, very much concerned about the vigilantism. I think, you know, one of the, the, the members, um, an ANC uh, MPL, saying that this vigilantism that we're seeing is a result of people having lost faith in the police and having to take, um, you know, having to take um, things to their own hands. And she's saying that, you know, we have the, the members of uh, the legislature saying that this needs to be kept in the in the bud, nipped in the bud, because what they don't want to see is an issue where other communities across Gauteng who have high crime rates actually do what happened um, on the 1st of December when uh, there was a, seven people were killed in a suspected act of vigilantism. But also the members of legislature also saying that um, they do realize that they have a role to play in terms of uh, the city of Johannesburg in improving roads, the Department of Social um, Development and Human Settlement in terms of building houses, and obviously home affairs in terms of uh, regulating the number of undocumented uh, immigrants. So obviously a very uh, back and forth in terms of uh, 
how they can obviously uh, come together and sort out the situation before it becomes something that is uncontrollable. To be so, thank you very much uh, for that. To be so, Koba, EWN reporter, speaking to us there about uh, this briefing. The Gauteng Police Commissioner, Lieutenant General Elias Mawela, giving members of the Provincial Legislature's Portfolio Committee on Community Safety plans to address that issue with crime in the Dipsuit Policing Precinct. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, uh, the members of the community in Dipsuit took the law into their own hands, brutally killing seven suspected criminals over the past couple of weeks. We did see uh, some of those community members being arrested appearing in court and we spoke to a community representative saying that they believe that those accused were innocent until proven guilty and clearly a a, a high level of frustration within the Dipstow community around the policing plans there and the ability of the police to actually rein in that situation so your thoughts on Elias Mawela uh, blaming undocumented foreigners for crime and community unhappiness in Dipstow WhatsApp Mandy on 072702 1702. Hello, uh, Mandy. It's uh, Norman in Pretoria. I think uh, it was a sad morning when I listened this morning to your colleague Bongani Bingwa announcing that uh, Zahara is no more. May her soul rest in peace. And uh, just on the issue of uh, last night's uh, breaking news that uh, the king of uh, the Zulu nation, uh, Isilo, uh, Mrs. Zul is not go- is not going to be recognized as the king. I think it's also going to, you know, uh, create the uh, open uh, can of worms. There, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting as to how the royal family will deal with the matter. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I think a lot of reaction to that uh, judgment from Judge Norman Davis uh, yesterday in that case that was brought to court by Mrs. Zulu's brother, Prince uh, Simakade Zulu, and the late King Zulatini's half-brother, Mbonisi Zulu. They challenged that process um, that was followed to identify and appoint King Mrs. Zulu as the heir to the throne. And what emerged from that is that the, the, the process wasn't correct. It wasn't uh, legally right, uh, that there were loopholes, and that the president did concede his affidavit that there were contentions that Mrs. Zulu cannot be recognized and appointed and coronated. So the question now is where does this leave King Mrs. Zulu and what has to happen now? And I think that's the concern. Many cultural experts are saying that um, that, that the loopholes resulted from not doing the, the work that needed to be done uh, by the presidency. So uh, lots of reaction to that and something that I suspect is going to, to rumble on through the courts, but also that is going to leave the, um, the the royal family itself on, on very shaky ground indeed. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Let's walk the talk. Well, let's stay in KwaZulu-Natal because the Nkata Freedom Party is holding its national policy conference, a two-day policy conference. So let's find out about that with Nkantla Mabaso, EWN KZN reporter. Nkantla, good afternoon to you. Tell us what's being discussed at this two-day IFP policy conference. Well, maybe the party president, Belenko Sinishabisa, officially opened this two-day uh, policy conference here at the Invizo Hall in Mbangeni. This hall, historic to the IFP, it was launched for teachers uh, during their governance here in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. Also, this is the venue where 
the late Prince Bangosu Tuptelebze held his last public gathering where he addressed um, the traditional leaders about his relationship with his King Mrs. Zuluga Zolitini after their relationship had soured. But the IFP is basically saying this conference is looking at strengthening and sharpening its policies, but also looking into issues of governance in and around KwaZulu-Natal. Mindy, you'd recall that the IFP is the official opposition in the KwaZulu-Natal provincial legislature and is currently aiming to win this provincial um, uh, government in the upcoming polls, but also it's running various municipalities here in KwaZulu-Natal, including Mshatuze here in Mbangi, which is one of the province's economic hub. You'd recall we were here recently where President Cyril Ramaphosa said he will be injecting 160 billion to that Deben Harbor for Transnet to sort some of the issues. So that those are some of the issues that the party president, Belenkosini Sabisa, raised that the issues of the economy. So they're currently blaming the ANC for any uh, economic crisis that the country may be facing, saying that the IFP must formulate and come up with policies that should they take government, they'll ensure that uh, some of those things uh, do not happen, which includes, I know, um, a, a, a lot of unemployment in and around the country mainly. So those are some of the things that are being discussed. Mm. The first open session is closed and they are currently in the closed session discussing it. Uh, hey, Ntantla, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Um, you would have heard me speaking about the Zulu royal family and the judgment yesterday. You, you have covered that story extensively um, over, over the past few months. Uh, is anybody talking about it there? Um, what is the reaction like in KwaZulu-Natal about this judgment and how are people feeling about it? A lot of people, maybe I must tell you, are not even bothered saying that a king is on the throne and that that particular high court decision does not um, 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 mean that the current king, Mrs. Zulu's certificate should be reversed. But a lot of people also point to the issue that despite all that's been said by cultural aspects and, and other experts and people or, and other members of the public, they're basically saying that it should be remembered that um, King Misuzulu's mother uh, married the late King Goodwill Zulitini uh, on behalf of the Zulu nation because he was sent by traditional leaders to go fetch her in a And the message was fetch a queen that will give birth to a reigning king. Already at the time, uh, King Zolitini had his firstborn son outside his, uh, outside wedlock. That was Prince Magate Samakosi. And then he had his other son, who, who, who's now late, Prince Letuk Tula of Kwaketum uh, Tandayo. And he had three other sons, that's Prince Pumuzuzulu, uh, Prince Buzabasi, and uh, a prince so, at, so so according to some that the method that already he had five sons and but the, the chiefs and traditional leaders in KwaZulu natal then sent the king to eswatini to go fetch another wife who's going to give earth. so they are really saying that they are standing by their decision that king misuzulu is reigning monarch they're even referring mainly to the uh, praise singers when they say that means even those who did not have passports and passes at the time i mean ids at the time were seen in eswatini as the king went to fetch his wife people are saying they stand by this i also spoke to the side supporting princess magate samakosi they also say they stand by the fact that they will identify smagate and no one else Maybe. Fascinating stuff, and Trantla, thank you. And uh, ah, I thought I was throwing you a curveball. Look at that. And Trantla Mabaso, EWN KZN reporter, uh, giving us some reaction there to that judgment. Um, but also, he's at the IFP policy conference that is underway at uh, the Imbizo Conference Center in Impang, Guinea. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Let's walk the talk.
So on this issue of the Zulu royal throne and the judgment handed down yesterday by Judge Norman Davis, uh, very much a, a much-awaited judgment, um, and and making the point that the judgment is not to determine who is the rightful king of the Amazulu. Instead, the applicants brought two review applications. The court was required to determine those. The first was whether the incumbent, who is King Mrs. Zulu, has been appointed as king in terms of Zulu custom. The second was whether the president had correctly recognized the present king in terms of the act. So a decision handed down there. Mpumalelo Zikalala, legal analyst, joining us to unpack this. Mpumalelo, good afternoon to you. For clarity then, where does this leave King Mesizulu? Good, good afternoon to you, good afternoon to your listeners. In fact, it leaves King Mesizulu in a, in a very, very difficult situation because on a, a ritual or cultural basis, he's still regarded as a silo. However, it's with the recognition of the presidential leadership and cause and act is not yet recognized if that particular judgment that was issued yesterday is not appealed. Okay, so where to from here now? Well, it's that there are two ways of doing it. Either for the president is to say, let me form this particular investigative committee, and then the committee will advise me, and then based on their advice, and then I will move forward. Or let me appeal this particular judgment, which I think they are most likely to do due to the peculiar nature of it. Firstly, you can't say in the body of the judgment, I'm not going to dwell or interfere in the judgment that was issued by Judge McDonald, certainly saying that this is the person that has been recognized, now dealing away with whatever dispute that might have been raised or might have necessitated that investigation committee be created. And yet, at the end of the judgment, come to a, to a, to a different conclusion. So they might go to court and say, well, we need a bit of clarity. Maybe the SCA will be able to provide that in terms of the over or the technical overruling of the judgment of the Tibetan division. Secondly, there are no provisions which have been alleged in terms of saying that certain traditional customs have not been followed. So on that basis, there's no um, bone of contention or there's no attack that has been made upon the recognition of his seat. So on that basis, I think both the seat and the president can take it to the SCA and say to the SCA, can you please provide some clarity? And then lastly, there's a bit of an issue if a judge is going to issue a directive directing or removing the discretionary powers of the president to decide whether a particular investigative committee should, should sit or not. So the discretion of whether to create one must still be within the preview of the president. So if you're going to issue an order being prescriptive in that manner, it may even border on the principles of legality and maybe the president would want to go and challenge that particular order based on that. Fundamentally, at the heart of this, Mpumalela, was the fact that the president did not follow the law, right? He failed to comply with the Leadership Act, which says that there has to be evidence or an allegation that the identification of a person as king or queen was not made in terms of customary law. Um, So that's the one issue. And also um, that he ignored the objections and concerns of members of the royal family. So he he erred. On a different basis, you can say that, however, remember that there is a judgment that comes from court that says this is the correct individual. So if the, uh, if the, it was the other way around, and then the King Mrs. Ulu then come back and say, but Mr. President, there's a judgment that comes from the KZN division that says, technically my appointment was done above board. Everything that needs to be done in order for me to be recognized as a sealer has been compliant with. So on what basis are you then coming and saying that that should not be done. And in terms of creating a particular investigative committee, on what basis do you then take the complaints that which has been within your table as a complaint that ought to have been dealt with? From the side of the president in the submission that was submitted earlier, the president was saying, I purely relied on the judgment of Judge Madonna. He is the one that said, 
when the matters come to me containing this particular dispute, I'm making this order, and this order is declaring this particular individual as the appropriate individual to be regarded as, as, as a sale. And that's the basis in which the president then relied upon making uh, okay Mrs. Ulisse. Mpumulelo, thank you so much. Mpumulelo Zikalala, legal analyst, uh, speaking to us there, giving us an uh, interpretation on the judgment that was handed down yesterday. As we heard from Nkantla Mabaso, it seems as though there isn't massive reaction in KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, everyone uh, pretty satisfied with the status quo. But however, if you do look at that at that judgment and the fact that the president failed to comply with the Leadership Act, uh, he ignored the objections and concerns of members of the royal family. Um, the president also conceding in his affidavit that the princess Tembi contended that King Sulu cannot be recognized um, and in his answering affidavit the president admitting being aware of conflicts in the royal house but he still went ahead anyway. Uh, so lots of uh, reaction from experts to this from the actual um, population it seems not quite so much. What are your thoughts on this and your understanding of where it now leaves King Sulu? What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Hi, Mandy. Um, Mandy, I would like to know if there's anyone out there, um, other, other than the minister himself or his spokespeople, who can tell me what uh, the Minister of Electricity has achieved ever since he came into office. Uh, because I, I, I can't think of anything that he's actually done uh which which is positive which is a positive development or an improvement on our current uh electricity situation yeah and for me he's bec- first becoming the minister of hot air and sweet nothings and uh yeah i i've, I've lost uh, interest in anything that he has to promise thanks farai let me challenge myself and play devil's advocate here for us. I suppose he would argue that we now have a CEO at ESCOM, but does that fall under him necessarily? Uh, he would argue that we are now beginning this process um, of trying to get... Uh, 2,500 megawatts of, of nuclear energy. So, uh, And he would argue that load shedding has got better as well. Uh, but ultimately, I think the real problem here is that it took so long to actually define what his responsibilities were, uh, what he was able to do according to the law, and the fact that there are four ministers responsible for, for ESCOM, and yet it seems that things just don't seem to get better at all. 702, the Midday Report, Monday to Friday. 12 to 1 p.m. The African Peer Review Mechanism is turning 20 years old. So this year marks the 20th anniversary of the African Peer Review Mechanism. uh, And it's a a good governance promotion tool. It was launched in March 2003. Um, And in an op-ed about this, Stephen Grust, who is the head of the African Governance and Diplomacy Program at the South African Institute of International Affairs, uh, describes it as being a long and sometimes bumpy and even journey towards transparency. So let's understand this a bit further with Stephen Cruz, who joins us now. Stephen, good afternoon to you. Thanks for your time. Firstly, let's start with the basics for some people who may not have been following this as closely as you. And just remind us what um, the African peer review mechanism is and how it was born in the era of Thabo Mbeki. Thanks, Mandy. Yes, uh, you know, when Thabo Mbeki was president, there was uh, a good relationship he had with his counterpart in Nigeria, Ole Sagun Obasanjo. And uh, the two of them really spearheaded reform of the African Union itself from the OAU into the African Union. But they developed this, this tool called the African Peer Re- Review Mechanism, which is a voluntary process. Countries uh, volunteer to accede. So far, 43 have 
have joined. And as part of this process, you're meant to speak to your citizens, assess your governance strengths and weaknesses, um, fill in a big report, and uh, then you get reviewed by African experts. And then it's up to you as the government to implement the recommendations that have been made. So South Africa, for example, has been reviewed twice. And uh, today they are launching, the president is launching the South African report, the second one. Many of the APRM recommendations, as you say, are, are simply ignored. Um, and, and the argument is that states, states need to be open to learning from the exercise and institute the required reforms. What, what should be happening? Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the, it's one thing to go through the review process and to examine yourself and uh, mention your problems. But if you're not going to have the political will or the funding uh, or the gravitas, the political importance of this to implement it, you know, we have to ask really, uh, has the $50 million that has been spent on this process over the last two decades really produced anything? I mean, I think it, it may have helped at the margins. It diagnosed some problems before they happened. So, for example, it was one of the earliest reports to pick up the possibility of xenophobia in South Africa, but not much was done about it. Uh, and, and that's part of the problem is that these are long telephone books, uh, these reports with hundreds of recommendations and they almost collapse under their own weight because the, the country doesn't know which ones to implement or has no intention of implementing uh, any of them. And how does it uh, tie in with other processes like the National Development Plan and uh, visions for the country and, and poverty reduction strategies? Um, it's, it's very complex. Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, Stephen Gruzd is the head of the Governance and Diplomacy Program at the South African Institute of International Affairs, having a look at the 20th anniversary of the African peer review process. The Midday Report on 702. Winner of the Best Daytime Show Award at the 2023 Telcom Radio Awards. So news breaking last night, uh, tragically, that the South African singer, the solstress uh, Zahara, has died at the age of 35, uh, passing away in hospital after spending a couple of weeks in hospital. And so many tributes coming in uh, for Zahara. Her real name, of course, is Bulawa Mkutukana. And um, the cause of her death has not been revealed, but she was admitted to hospital last month due to liver complications. So we've seen all kinds of people paying tribute to her. It's such a terribly terribly tragic story um, her music was was so beautiful it really spoke to to the soul and so beautifully South African and as a team we've been discussing Zahara and her impact and her legacy and how she, she a lot of conversations around how she was treated uh, in the music industry so Tamagwini Mavovana the producer of this show joining me and of course Palesa Mabuya who you might have heard at the beginning of the show as well speaking about uh, 2011 when Loliwe actually came out and and Kama uh, there's been a lot of reaction to the passing of, of Zahara. Take us through some of that. Mandy, we have seen tributes on social media, um, mostly celebrating Zahara. I mean, people were really shocked. They were hoping that she would pull through. And they were hoping that she would survive this uh, illness. But a lot of people just celebrating and remembering the impact that she's had in the industry. She's released some of the most 
amazing and most beautiful music and like you and Palesa were saying earlier on there was that one December where you would go to the taxi rank you you would go to your parents house they would be blasting this music everybody knew every single lyric especially Loliwe I think Loliwe was the most famous uh, song of hers but really people South Africans are really mourning uh, the songstress there has been quite a bit of controversy there's some finger pointing going on as well mm. at, at DJ Spoo um, some people defending him as mm. well for people that haven't followed this just mm. give us some context about wh- mm. wh- why this conversation is taking place I've, I've mostly seen anger I think anger is the word uh, Mandy because Zahara didn't get justice the context is that Zahara was under TS Records and uh, she has publicly spoken about how she was ill-treated by DJ Spoo and TK Liz and how she didn't get royalties how the songs that she wrote the songs that uh, made her famous and made this, um, uh, this, this recording company famous actually took her money and she got a very small percentage of that money. Most of the money went to uh, TK Ngoza and to DJ Swoo and she got little to nothing. After she left this uh, this recording company she was also left very, very, very much broke. So she still was trying to fight that but she did say in one podcast, I think a month uh, I think about a month ago that she wanted to fight this, but she had no money to fight it. That's how dire the situation was, Mandy. But, Palissa, there's also an argument that this is how the music industry works. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so ex- just explain that to us. I feel like when artists, and this might be weird, mm. but I feel like when artists get into these record labels, right, um, because they want to make it in the industry, mm. they don't read the fine print mm. and the fine lines. So they get in and just sign contracts. And somewhere, somehow, later on, it comes and backfires on them. And then it becomes this whole situation where mm. it's now a pull and push between artists and the recording companies. Mm. So it's actually a much broader issue that is, yeah. that, that is being elevated. Yeah, now. a lot of other artists are also speaking out, like Balesa said, about their own contracts. And I think that's just the nature of the music business, Mandy. It's not just exclusive to South Africans. Uh, young artists are taking advantage of, they're signed, uh, they sign these deals and they don't really have lawyers or legal teams to kind of look through the fine print and they really don't get the fair end of the deal, but they hold the talent at the end of the day. Uh, so um, we also know that Zahara, mm. as you mentioned, did various interviews yes. um, and and uh, she made some pretty poignant comments about her, her own talent as yes. well. Like I mentioned earlier, Mandy, uh, she had an interview with Mac G, the podcaster, and Mac G was asking her, you know, wh- what's what's so special about your talent? And she um, she exclaimed and said that I don't just have talent. I have a gift. And I think we should play that audio. Let me correct you. Yeah, yeah. There's a difference between a gift Mm. And a talent. Mm, mm, mm. I'm gifted. Yeah. Not talented. Oh, I like that. I like that. Why do you say you're gifted, not talented? Because you must remember if you are talented, you can actually you can go to school and mm. actually enhance your talent. Mm. But when I gifted, okay. Who taught Michael Jackson when he was five years old to actually do whatever he was doing? Mm. Who taught me how to play the guitar? Nobody did. Mm. So when you are talented, it's a it's a gift that you can have that you can actually go to school for. Yeah. As Dalala, you just give it. <laughs> Now 
Such terribly, terribly sad news. And just listening to that, it just makes me feel so, so sad about Zahara Bulawa Mkutukana, who passed away at the age of just 35. And what an incredibly momentous contribution she has made to music in South Africa. Her debut album, Loliwe, that we've been speaking about, uh, went double platinum in less than two weeks, as the team has been saying. It just, it was enormous in 2011, and it has continued to be. Um, She was included on the BBC's 100 Women list. um, And, uh, of course, there's a lot of conversation taking place about the royalties and her legacy as well but I think most important just to remember Zahara and her incredible incredible talent uh, which she has described as being more than talent and just her contribution and we remember her and her family as well